0: Acts chapter 16, verses 6 through 15. Um, from the beginning of the book of Acts, I mean, basically, Acts is just the story of the gospel going out. So you've got all these events that happen in Jerusalem or in the close surrounding areas in Jerusalem in the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then, of course, Jesus rises from the dead, and then he ascends to be with the Father. He commissions the apostles, his closest followers, to take the gospel out, and that's what Acts is. It's just sort of a record of the gospel going out. So we, um, Maria's brother-in-law, well, my brother-in-law too, is a crafty guy, um, which is oftentimes a bummer because they'll send a picture of something that he just made. You know, like in an afternoon, like, oh, I made this play set for my children where he looked at a picture and then he just made it happen, which is very different for me. But in any event, he made us this thing that keeps track of the kid's height. So it's there on the wall and every birthday will mark their height so we can see how they're advancing, right? Well, that's what the book of Acts does. It's just advance after advance after advance. So the gospel starts in Jerusalem and then it goes out to the wider areas of Judea and then from Judea to Samaria and then from Samaria to the region of the Gentiles there in Asia. So that's kind of what we've been seeing happen. But this morning we see the gospel message cross another significant threshold where it goes outside of Asia. It goes outside of the Near East into Europe. So it's crossing this brand new threshold. That's sort of the context for this passage, Acts chapter 16, 6 through 15. So hear the word of the Lord. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So they attempted to go into Bithynia. I'm sorry, but the spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. Come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Well, there's at least five things the Lord is asking us as Christians to do from this passage. And this is the way that we'll look at the passage. It's the outline that's there on the back. So these five things. So first, take comfort that God always secures his plans. First thing we'll see. Second, aim to share the gospel. Third, remember the Lord has to open hearts. He's the one that has to do that, not us. Fourth, be baptized, or if you've been baptized, remember your baptism. And then finally, fifth, be hospitable. These are the five things, at least five things, that we see from this passage. Now, again, let's remember where we are in, in the story of Acts. So Paul and his missionary companions, they've been traveling west, delivering the letter that they developed in the church in Jerusalem in Acts 15 about what's necessary to become a Christian, what's necessary to be saved, which which isn't just becoming uh, trusting in Christ plus becoming an Israelite. That's what some people were saying. No, it's just trust in Christ alone. Trust alone in Christ alone. So that happens at Acts 15. They develop this letter to take to all these different churches in the region to explain that, to explain what the gospel is. So that's what Paul and his his missionary friends are doing. They're heading west to deliver this letter. So they go through Derby and they go through Lystra. They are going due west. But then instead of continuing west like they thought they were going to, They turn and they go north, and then they go several hundred miles, sort of unexplained, at least if you looked at it on a map. And they're headed for the region of Bithynia, but then they take a sharp left, kind of at the last point, and then they head over to Troas. So basically, if if you were traveling with them and you didn't know what was going on and what their thinking was, it was pretty erratic. You would think they either didn't know where they were going or they thought they were headed one direction and then they changed plans or maybe they were lost or they had no plan. So, so why the erratic route? Why? Because typically when Paul is headed out, he's, there's an order to it. He's heading in straight lines, the way that traveling is best typically. So why the erratic route? Well, we're told, verse six, and they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. So they don't stop in the region where they're headed because the Holy Spirit doesn't let them go into that region. He stops them from doing that. He keeps them moving on, going somewhere different. Same thing happens in verse 7. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. Now, before we talk about the connection of the Holy Spirit and the erratic route, let's pause for a second and just recognize some things we see about the Holy Spirit here that are significant. Two things in particular. So first of all, this passage reminds us the Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit's not a force. The Holy Spirit uh, isn't some sort of uh, thing that's ethereal that you can't really put your, put your hands on. He's not an energy. No, he's a person. And that's why in the Bible... And in the book of Acts, we've seen it several times. The Holy Spirit is doing things that only individuals do. So, for example, in verse 6, he forbids. That's the verb there. So the trees in your backyard, they don't forbid, right? An idea like chance doesn't forbid. Trees don't do anything like that. Ideas don't do anything like that. Concepts don't do anything. No, individuals forbid. And the Holy Spirit's an individual, The Holy Spirit is a person. But but second, he's also a member of the Trinity, which means that he's also God. So he's a person, and he's God. So in verse 7, he's called the Spirit of Jesus. So all the attributes Jesus has, the Spirit has all of those same attributes. And if you're not a Christian, this is an idea called the Trinity. So it's the fact that there's one God— but he exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. A concept that is simple humans who are creatures, we can't wrap our heads around fully. But scripture makes clear that this is the truth, one God, in three persons. We see it here in our passage. So the Spirit, he's a person. He's also God. And we're told the erratic route is because of this third person of the Trinity. It's because of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't allow Paul and these guys to go into these regions where they're headed because he doesn't want them to go there. So he doesn't allow it. Now, we don't know what this looks like practically. It just says he forbids them to go. He doesn't allow them to go. It could have been practical circumstances. So maybe there were roads that were closed, something like that. It could have been more subjective, some sort of inner understanding or feeling where they thought, okay, we shouldn't do this. Luke doesn't tell us. But what we know is that it was something really, really clear that kept them from doing it. And this is our first point this morning. Take comfort that God always secures his plans. Take comfort that God always secures his plan. So it's true. God kept shutting these doors in these missionaries' faces, but that wasn't haphazard. It wasn't accidental. He closed those doors because he wanted them somewhere else. And that's what we're told in verse 9. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So God gives Paul this vision where this man from Macedonia is calling and asking for help, asking Paul and the missionaries to, to come there. And, and the fact that Paul receives this supernatural vision, it shouldn't surprise us. Remember in the book of Acts, he's been doing supernatural things through the hands of the apostles the, the whole time. In fact, God, God worked through these apostles in a unique way to establish their authority, to establish the fact that they were unique spokesmen of the Lord. This is Second Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. And there Paul says, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders. So God gives the apostle Paul this clear vision of this guy who in verse 9 asked them to, to help us is what this guy is saying. Come and help us. Now, now what kind of help is he asking for? So you can just think back over the past week. You probably needed help at some point. So what kind of help was it? So if you're, if you're a kid living at home, maybe you needed a ride somewhere. Maybe you needed help with your homework from your folks. Or if you're an adult, maybe at work you needed help with some sort of project, right, or some advice from a friend or something like that. But, but see, even though you, you might need help with things like these, you probably could have done part of it on your own. I mean at work, if there's a project and you need help, there's at least some headway you can probably make on your own, right? And you're just asking somebody to kind of fill in the gap and, and go past what you, can, what you can do. But see, as humans, we have a problem that we can't remedy in the least. So usually when we have problems, we can make a little headway, but there's one problem we all have as humans. We can't remedy it in the least. We can't make any progress on it, and that's our sin. It's the biggest problem we have. It's a problem that on our own we can't do anything about. We're sinners, and, and no matter how hard we might try to work and scrap and try, we can't make ourselves righteous. So I was mixing up some of the uh, – like some cement to fill in a crack in the garage floor earlier this week, and, uh, and I had some paper towels, and I had this cement stuff on my hands. And I needed to get a tool, and I didn't want to get the cement stuff all over that tool. So I took the paper towel, and I was thinking in my head, I'm just going to wipe this off on this paper towel. But that's not the way it worked at all. So what I found was the more I'm working my hand around on this paper towel, the more cementy my hands became, where they were covered more than, than when I started. Well, That's our sinfulness. So, so in our strength, the, the more we try and rub it off, the more covered we realize we are. That's how it works with humans like us and, and with sin. And if you're here and you're not a Christian or you don't know what you think about Jesus, I wonder if you've realized that. I wonder if you've come to the point where where you see that, that you can't make yourself righteous, even if you try, even if you see your shortcomings and you think, man, I I was impatient with my kids again, right? Or I lashed out at my coworkers or I saw this person. I had a good opportunity to love them. And then selfishly, I didn't do it. So you probably see things like that. I think most people do. But have you come to the point where you realize you can't remedy that? You can't change your heart in that way. You can't become righteous. And see, that's our biggest problem. That's our biggest problem is our sin. And it's a problem God will have to deal with one day on the day of judgment. That's all of our biggest problem. That's what you need the most help with. Well, look at how Paul responds to the Macedonian call for help. Verse 10. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So see, Paul knows what they need help with. They need help with their sin, and the only solution is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus. Paul knows what they need is to hear the truth that they've been created by a good and perfectly holy God, a God that every human is accountable to because we're his creatures and we're living in his world. And the fact that mankind didn't submit to God, we did the opposite. We turned the other direction and rebelled against our creator by disobeying him. And that sin deserves God's judgment. But the best part of the gospel, that's exactly why Christ came. God sent Jesus to live a perfect life and then to die on the cross in place of us, to stand in our place to pay for our sins And and the good news is we don't achieve being connected to Jesus. We don't achieve his work on the cross by working hard or being virtuous or smart or humble or anything like that. No, it's through faith alone in Christ alone. It's not through working. It's not through being a better person. No, our sins are covered the second we first trust in Christ alone for our salvation. And then we're given eternal life with God. That's the promise that we have as Christians. If you're not a Christian, but you're willing to think more about that and talk more about that, then send me an email. Scott at GraceForMe.com. It's there on the back of the bulletin. Or talk to a member of this church. Let's talk more about, about the gospel. So, so that's the gospel message that the man in this vision is asking Paul to bring to these non Christians in Macedonia. And this is another turning point in the book of Acts. Macedonia was in Europe. This will be the first time the gospel has, has crossed over outside of Africa, outside of Asia. It's headed into Europe. And see, God had a plan for this trip all along. He always knew exactly what he was doing. Before the foundation of time, God knew, Paul and these guys, I'm gonna send them to cross over and to take the gospel here for the first time. He always knows exactly what he's doing. And the encouraging thing for us is that he secures his plans. He secures his plans. He wanted the gospel in Europe. So each time Paul and their friends tried to deviate, which human-wise made the most sense. They were traveling a normal route. God just didn't let them do it. He just kept saying, nope, you're not going here. I'm going to shut this door because he's directing them to the spot exactly where he wants them to be. He keeps them moving so that the gospel goes where he wants it to go. It's easy to think that people can mess up God's plans. Even if we know theologically that's not true, it's easy just instinctively to think that, right? To think, oh, this was going so well. But then this person did this thing, and now God's plans are off track. This thing isn't supposed to happen, and now it's happening. It's easy sometimes to think we can mess up God's plans, but that is not true. It's not true. God always secures his plans. Like Seth mentioned, several men in the church who've been going through the book of Daniel on Tuesday nights and uh, encouraging one another with that book. Here's a passage we talked about this past Tuesday. It's Daniel chapter 4. Verse 35, God does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand. Nobody can stop him or say to him, what have you done? See, that's why Paul and his friends weren't able to minister in Asia. That's why they weren't able to minister in Bithynia in this passage. That wasn't God's plan for them. And God always secures his plans. Of course, the point for us is to take comfort in that. Take comfort in it. Take comfort in the fact that God always secures his plans. And in particular, you need to remember that when you're getting doors closed in your face, the way that Paul is here. They're trying to go places and doors keep shutting in their face. Now, how do you handle that? How do you respond when that kind of thing happens in your life, when doors are getting shut in your face? So maybe you're a student and you're looking at colleges and they just keep not working out. And you keep going down the list, and those don't work out either. Doors shut in your face. Or maybe you don't like your job, so you're looking for another one. And maybe you've been looking for a while, and just nothing seems to be happening, and doors are being shut in your face. Or maybe you'd like to get married, but the paths you've walked down haven't worked out. There's all sorts of times in life when God shuts doors. But the thing we have to remember is that God shuts a door because he doesn't want you to go through that door. Right, That's so simple, but that's the thing we have to remember. When God shuts a door, it's because he doesn't want you to go through that door. That college didn't work out because God doesn't want you at that college. That relationship didn't work out because God doesn't want you to be married right now, or he doesn't want you to be married to that person. You you didn't find another job last month because God didn't want you at a different job last month. Right? He he shuts the door because he doesn't want you to go through that door. So trust him. His plans for your life, they're not getting messed up. Everything is perfectly on track. It's perfectly on track. Now that's hard because we usually can't see how those plans are coming together, at least not when we're in the middle of the journey. Notice here, God didn't give Paul the vision at the front end. (laughs) He gives it to him at the tail end. So Paul has got to be wondering, why are we doing this? Why are we going all the way around this region when we could have just made a straight line? And then at the last moment, is when God tells him, when he reveals, this is why I'm opening this door. So trust him, take comfort that God always secures his plans. And since God always secures his plans, Paul and these other missionaries, they end up in Macedonia to share the gospel. Look at verse 11. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and on the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we were where we supposed that there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. And this is our second main point. Aim to share the gospel. Aim to share the gospel. So Paul and his companions, they land in Philippi, which is who he writes to those Christians later on. The book of Philippians is written to folks that will be converted in this missionary trip, the book of Philippians here in Philippi. So this is clearly where God wants them to be. And they know why they're there. They're there to preach the gospel. That's why God had called them there. And that explains what they're doing in verse 13. So on the Sabbath day, which is Saturday, on the Sabbath, they go out to the edge of a river. Now, why do they go out on the Sabbath to this particular place? Well, the reason they go on the Sabbath is because even though we're in Philippi and we're in Europe, there's people there that are familiar with the God of Israel, there's people there that are interested in following the God of Israel, even if they themselves aren't Israelites. And that's we're going to meet this woman, Lydia. She's in this category. That's why in the middle of verse 14, she's called a worshiper of God. And apparently there were other folks in this category, and they regularly gathered by this river on the, on the Sabbath to pray together. So that's why Paul and his friends go down there. There's, there's strategy involved here. That's the thing. It's not happenstance. It's not that Paul and his friends are just walking around town aimlessly. No, there's strategy involved. They go out on the Sabbath to this particular place to find this group of people that they think will be interested, will be open to hearing about Christ. He finds people that, that are seeking. Not only that, they're seeking the God of, of Israel. So Paul didn't go into town with no strategy and no thought. He was always aiming. So uh, our kids over the past couple of years have gotten into baseball and softball, which is super fun. And uh, and when, when we would first throw with them, and I, at least it's like this for our kids. My guess is it's like this for everybody's kids. So when they're first throwing, their eyes are going everywhere when they've got the ball, and then when they're throwing is when they're looking at their target. Those two things happen at the same time, which is not a good a good recipe, right? Because that makes for errant throws. No, what you have to teach them is you look at your target. You're looking at your target the entire time until you throw. So you have to you have to aim. Well, by going to this particular place on this particular day, Paul is aiming. Jesus commends the same kind of aiming in Mark 6. You might remember that when he sends out the disciples two by two. So the the message for us is clear. Aim to share the gospel. Aim to share the gospel. We actually get to see a brand new Christian in our passage doing this. So in a minute, we're going to look at the conversion of Lydia, but look at what she's doing right off the bat as a young Christian. Verse 15, after she was baptized and her household as well. So this brand new convert she's instantly taking the gospel to her family members and probably her or the folks that are working for her. She's instantly taking the gospel to those people that she lives with. She's instantly leveraging her influence to bring others to Christ. She's aiming. And in this church praise the Lord we we have members that are good pace setters in this regard. So Jennifer Williams is good at this. Now we don't boast in Jennifer, we boast in the Lord. Right, It's his work. She's faithful at this. Seth is good at this. Fan is good at this. Gabe is good at this. They're, they're thoughtful about how to share the gospel with their coworkers. We prayed for that this morning. Alex is faithful in this. So they, they give their coworkers particular books sometimes. And those are, they don't just grab a book off the bookshelf. No, they're being thoughtful about it. What book would be helpful? What book might this person read? They, they think about how to invite them to church and when to invite them. And they ask for advice from all about all of that. They're aiming. That's the thing that we want to do. And in our passage, Paul is aiming. So of course, the question for us is, are you aiming to share the gospel? Do, Do you give it thought? Do you, do you think about the places that you naturally are, the places you have access to, and then try to figure out how you might be able to talk to Christ in those places, where you might be able to do that. If you're a student, have you thought about that? What's the best avenue you've got at school to talk to other students about the gospel? What would that look like at your job? If you're a stay-at-home mom, what activities do your kids take part in where you could leverage that time in those people to aim to share the gospel? No, No matter what your position is in life right now, what's your version of the riverside on the Sabbath? That's what Paul is aiming for. How do we aim in that way? Where's that bullseye where we can share the gospel with people? We all know this, but I think it's good to be reminded. If you're not aiming for anything, that's probably what you'll hit, right? If you're not aiming for anything, you're probably not going to hit anything. That's why we have Jesus telling us to aim. We have Paul's example here. Aim to share the gospel. However, as you aim to share the gospel, as you're strategic about it, you absolutely can't forget what we see next in our passage, which is that it's the Lord who has to open hearts. It's the Lord who has to open hearts. Verse 14, one who had heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city uh, city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. So remember that the Lord has to open hearts. Now the woman we're introduced here, Lydia, we actually know a decent amount about her. More than most non-Christians that we meet in Acts, we're told she's from the city of Thyatira and, and that she's a seller of purple goods. Now, Thyatira was known for this purple dye that they had, and she was involved in the sale of garments that were dyed in that purple that other places couldn't get their hands on. So it was, it was a special thing that they had there, and she's most likely either single or, or widowed since her husband is never mentioned would be an odd thing for him to not be mentioned and even more significant than that as a brand new christian she invites paul and his missionary friends to stay at her house which would been a thing that in the ancient near east that that a woman wouldn't have done without consulting her husband it probably would have been him that would call folks to stay with them she calls it her house down in verse 15 indicating that she's the leader of this household which is why verse 15 calls it her household well by the end of our passage This woman has become a Christian and she's also become a Christian with fruit in her life. And she'll be an encouragement to the church moving forward. So next week in Acts 16, Lord willing, we'll see Paul and Silas get arrested. When they get out of prison, they go to Lydia's house. She's the one that that they go to. So so how does she become a Christian? We end up at the end of our passage, we end up with this fruitful Christian. She's a non Christian at the beginning. How does she become a Christian? Well, she becomes a Christian because she responds to the gospel. She responds to the gospel. Like the book of Acts has made clear so many times, she believes in Jesus Christ to pay for her sins. That's how she became a Christian. Like Peter says in chapter 15, verse nine, God cleansed her heart by faith, by her trust in Christ. Okay, so that's how she became a Christian. But this passage asks us to take a step back even further. So that's how she became a Christian. She was saved by trust in Christ. But why did she trust in Christ? Why did she trust in Christ? Was it because she was smarter than the other folks down at the riverside? They were all a little less intelligent. She was more intelligent. Was it because she was more virtuous? Was it because she was more humble? No, none of those things. Second sentence of verse 14, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. So it's it's God who changes her. Her her heart was heading in one direction, and then God intervenes and sends her heart in the other direction. We're told he opens her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Now that translation, pay attention, it's probably a little bit too soft. The way that Greek word is is translated most places in the New Testament is, is usually beware or take heed of. So he opened her heart to take heed of the gospel, to beware of it. Basically, to take the message seriously. That's what God does for Lydia here. He changes her heart so she'll take the gospel message seriously. The the way some other translations, the NIV and CSB and NASB, the way they said it, the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. So remember, when it comes to conversions in Christianity, when it comes to somebody becoming a Christian, the Lord has to open hearts. And the reason for that is simple. If left alone, our hearts will always reject Jesus. Every single time, 100%. If left alone, if God doesn't change us, if left alone, our hearts will always reject Jesus. So with your natural human heart in a million different worlds and given a million different chances, you would always reject Christ. Let me read us a few passages back to back. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse nine. Recognize how different this is from the way our culture talks about this, especially you kids that are in school. You might have teachers, guidance counselors. You might hear other grown ups talk about how good you are, how good your heart is, how you can follow your heart. It's what the world says. This is what the Bible says. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse nine. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Ecclesiastes chapter nine, verse three. The hearts of the children of man are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live. Romans 3.11, no one understands, no one seeks for God. 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person, so the person who God leaves alone, the way we're born into this world, the natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God for they are foolishness to him and he is not able to understand them. So you see why God has to fiddle with the human heart to get us to respond to Christ, to to work for anybody to ever come to Jesus. I was in downtown Bangor this past week and I actually remembered how great libraries are, being in the library, it was awesome. You you can go there, you don't have to buy anything. You can just sit there. That's what you're supposed to do, it's great. But I was in that section of Bangor where I'm headed one direction and I wanted to turn around and go to the library and it's all those one-way streets and they just stick it to you. And those streets were like, I'm not going to let you go to the library. And so they just redirected me, and it, it took a while to work my way around. Well, well, the human heart is a one-way street, and it's leading away from the Lord. That's the natural human heart. It's not, both, it's not two ways. It's a one-way street, and it's only leading away from God. And see, God has to do a work to reconstruct the heart, to make it a street that's going toward him, toward Christ, but see, that's exactly what he does. Listen to the way he describes it in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26. He says, I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. That's what God does. Because of his grace and his love, he reaches out and he changes sinners' hearts. So we will respond to the gospel. And again, if he had not changed your heart, you never would have come to Christ. Listen to the way Jesus says it. This is Matthew 11, verse 27. No one knows the father except the son and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. John chapter five, verse 21. The son gives life to whom he will. John chapter six, verse 44. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. Verse 14 in our passage, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. So God calls Lydia to himself. And remember what we just saw, the first point that we just looked at in this passage, God always secures his plans. That means that his call, his call to a sinner, to come to Christ, it's always effective. 100% of the time, because he always secures his plans. The way the Protestant reformers said it, God's calling is irresistible. It's kind of like when I offer cookies to my kids. So I've had children for 10 years now, right? At this point, we have five kids. I have offered cookies to my children on multiple occasions. I have no problem offering cookies to my children. You know how many times they've turned me? This is literally true. How many times they've turned me down? Zero. (laughs) Hundreds of times I've offered cookies. Hundreds of times they have accepted them. Because see, in my kids' eyes, cookies are so good, they are irresistible. Well, that's the same type of thing here. When God opens up a sinner's hearts, when he opens up our eyes to see the gospel of Christ for what it is, that gospel is irresistible. Nobody's got to turn away from it. It's too good. It's too good. And if you're a Christian, that's how it was for you, right? You, You were like the missionaries at the end of our passage where Lydia invites them back. And she prevails upon them, we're told. Well, God prevailed upon you. He drew you in. Now, now why, do we, why do we say all this? Why do, we, why do we labor on this point? Why do we need to keep the truth from verse 14 in mind? Why do we need to remember it's the Lord who has to open hearts? Three quick reasons. First, it humbles us, which is always good. We can't have too much humility, right? It's the way Americans think about money. Can you have too much money in your bank account? No, of course not. That's the way Christians should think about humility. Can you have too much of it? No, never. So first, it humbles us. If the reason you became a Christian has nothing to do with your smarts or your virtue or your humility, you have nothing to boast about. So if it's God who drew you and it's all his work, that should produce humility in you. So that's the first reason. Second, it elevates the Lord. It leads to praise for God. So it humbles the sinner It praises God. The only reason you've been saved is because of his goodness and grace. That should lead you to praise him. So it humbles the sinner. It elevates God. We praise God for it. But third thing, this means the pressure is off when it comes to evangelism. And that fits with this point with thinking about aiming to share the gospel. If God is the one who saves, if he's the one who has to open a heart, then that means the pressure is off when it comes to evangelism. You're not responsible to save anyone. And you couldn't save anyone, even if you wanted to. You can't do that because you can't get to somebody's heart. Only God can open someone's heart. So remember, the Lord has to open hearts. But remember what we saw last week. Someone becoming a Christian, that's not the end of ministry as far as that person is is involved. It's actually just the beginning. So conversion just starts the process whereby somebody is transformed more and more into Christ's image. And that begins with the first bit of obedience that Jesus asks from brand new Christians, which is baptism. Look at verse 15. And after she was baptized and her household with her, she urged us saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And this is our fourth point, fourth point: Be baptized. Be baptized. Now, if you're not too familiar with Christianity, baptism is just when somebody is publicly dipped in water, washed to symbolize their connection to Christ, to symbolize their connection to his, his death and burial and resurrection by way of faith in him. That's what baptism is. This is Colossians chapter 2, verse 12. You were buried with Christ in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith. So someone goes down into the water, it's pointing to their connection with Jesus and his death and his burial, and then they come out of the water, symbolizing their connection to to Jesus and his resurrection to new life, which is a beautiful picture, beautiful picture of the gospel. And and this gospel symbol, it's the first obedience Jesus calls for from the Christian. He makes that clear in the Great Commission of Matthew 28, when the first obedience, the, the one he singles out is baptism, and then the book of Acts has made this clear to us over and over again. So chapter 2, chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, here in chapter 16, baptism, it's the first step of obedience in the Christian life. So, so if you're a Christian, and in particular, if you've got Christians around you that are vouching for your faith in Christ and that see fruit in your life, if you really do look like a genuine Christian, then the question for you is, have you been baptized? And if not, then Why? why not be baptized? And finally, do, do any of your reasons for not being baptized rise to the level of ignoring your Savior's words? That's an easy one, right? No, of course not. No. Trust your Savior. As one pastor has said, Jesus is going to ask you to do a lot more difficult things than getting wet. That's the truth, isn't it? So follow him by being baptized. And if you're here and, and you've already been baptized, then remember your baptism. Remember your baptism. This is something we're told to do in scripture. So Paul tells the Roman Christians to remember their baptism in Romans 6. He tells the Colossians to remember their baptism in Colossians 2. Peter tells the, the Christian readers of his letter to remember their baptism in 1 Peter chapter 3. Okay, so what is it we're supposed to remember about our baptism? Listen to how Paul says it. In Galatians three, verse 26, he says, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So see New Testament baptism, it's, it's a symbol. It's a sign that points to a spiritual reality and the spiritual reality it points to is your union with Jesus Christ. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So when you remember remember your baptism, you're remembering that through faith you were united to Jesus in his life, and his death, and his resurrection. So in the same way you can look at your wedding ring and, and remember your wedding day, that event that this symbol represents, looking at your baptism calls your memory back to the day you trusted in Christ alone to pay for your sins. So... So when you're feeling overwhelmed by your sinfulness, look at your baptism. And remember that Jesus' blood on the cross covers all your sins. When when you're feeling tempted to sin, look at your baptism and remember the great truth of the gospel that you were connected to Christ in his resurrection. You've been given new life in him because of faith in Christ. When, When you feel far from God and you're wondering whether he's with you or whether he loves you, Look at your baptism and remember that in God's eyes, you're eternally bound to his son and he will treat you always according to the status that Jesus deserves. You've been connected to Christ. Your baptism is a symbol of that. The symbol of the the gospel where you're washed with water, baptism, there's a reason it comes at the beginning of, of the Christian life and not the middle or the end. We're called to look back on it. So remember your baptism. But the final point this morning, her, her baptism, Lydia's baptism, it's not the only fruit we see in her earliest days here as a Christian. Verse 15, and after she was baptized and her household with her, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And so our final point this morning, be hospitable. As Christians, be hospitable. So, so as a brand new Christian, Lydia turns right around and offers her house for these missionaries to stay in. And and that's exactly what happens. At the end of verse 15, we're told, and she prevailed upon us. Now, keep in mind, opening your house to someone in the ancient Near East was a little bit different than today. It it was a lot more than just like leaving the front door open and just saying like, yeah, come and go as you'd like. I'll leave some sheets out. You can stay in this room or stay on this couch or whatever. No, in this culture, you prepared a special place for them to sleep, a, a place of honor. You prepared food for them to eat. And you bent your entire schedule around their schedule. That's what hospitality was, having somebody stay in your home in the ancient Near East. So it's like this today in lots of non-Western cultures. Their hospitality is kind of our version on steroids. So it was a lot of hospitality. So, So why would this woman, who's obviously pretty busy, she owns her own business. She has a household full of people who she's in charge of. Why is she making this offer that will demand a lot from her? What's... Because the gospel should make us hospitable. And the gospel had made Lydia hospitable. Listen to some passages about this. Romans chapter 12, verse 13. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Hebrews chapter 13, verse two. Do not neglect to show hospitality. First Peter chapter four, verse nine. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. That's what Lydia is doing. As a new creation in Christ, she finds herself spring-loaded to offer her resources to brothers and sisters in Christ that need them. And if you're a member of this church, this is actually what we've signed up for to do with one another. This is Article 10 of our church covenant. When the need arises, I'll share my resources, my time, my money, my things, and my abilities with fellow church members who need them more than I do. That's exactly what Lydia does. She recognizes that her brothers in Christ need a place to stay. She has a place to stay. So she offers them that place to stay. Now, now what does being a Christian have to do with hospitality? What's the connection between hospitality and the gospel? Romans chapter 15, verse 7 explains. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So Lydia welcomes Paul because Christ has welcomed her. If Christ has welcomed you, then welcome others. That's the point. So open up your home to your brothers and sisters in Christ for a meal or for a Bible study or just to hang out. Open up your calendar to go help people with a house project that they need help with, right? Or getting coffee with somebody or getting a meal with somebody during the week. Open up your wallet to help with financial needs. You know, somebody that needs a car repair or help with certain bills or to pay for wood and oil. If Christ has welcomed you, then welcome others. And remember your baptism, that symbol that that you've been washed and are part of that group who has been welcomed by Jesus. And remember that he welcomed you before you trusted in him. You weren't looking for him. He came to you and, and opened your heart and put the gospel in front of others so he might do the same to them. But, but regardless of how the Lord uses our witness to the gospel, remember that he is always fulfilling his plans for his glory. Let's pray together.